You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. So today on the show, we have Paul. And Paul's story is interesting because he started from nothing. He came from a poor family. His parents went through a bankruptcy when he was about 16 years old. And through that whole process and situation, he really realized that he needed to take control of his finances and his money going forward. So now Paul's worth $1.1 million, and about 625000 of that is invested in five single-family homes. So we dive into that process about what it was like buying those family homes, single-family homes, renting them, a few interesting stories that he shares about you know, being a landlord, and initially I think it was an accidental landlord, and he also has about 450000 in retirement savings. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. All right, welcome to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast today. Today on the show, we've got Paul. Paul, do you want to kind of just give us a little background of, of who you are and what you're all about? Yeah, uh, thanks, Jason Clark, for having me. Um, I grew up in a lower middle class family, and uh, my parents never really had much money. And so I watched them uh, pay 30 years of a mortgage and, and get themselves into a, a bankruptcy situation when I was a teenager. And then uh, my dad passed away in his late 60s, and my mom ended up having to do a reverse mortgage against that same house to live in it. And just watching that, I realized I didn't want to be in that position. So that got me started early, uh, thinking about alternative ways uh, of taking care of myself in retirement. And as we all know, you know, my parents were from the old school, and they had the attitude that, you know, if you take care of your employer, they'll take care of you kind of thing, kind of thing. and this was you know, probably in the late 70s, early 80s that they were having those conversations with me. And it just struck me as odd because I'm sure you and everybody else that's listening to this knows that that was around the time that, you know, pensions were going away and companies started to have a, a different attitude towards the workforce, let's say that. And so I didn't really buy into what they were saying, although I've been, you know, I've been very loyal to the employers that I have had. I always, in the back of my mind, know that, you know, it, at any time, you could be moving along, you know, to another employer and starting over. So with those kinds of things in mind, you know, I attended college. My initial bachelor's degree was in psychology, and uh, I became a computer enthusiast about halfway through that. Uh, picked up a Commodore Amiga and, and took to it like a fish to water and uh, learned everything I could about it. And after I graduated with my bachelor's degree, I went back and started taking computer science coursework, uh, you know, Pascal programming, C, assembly, and then I decided I wanted to get dual teacher certified. So I got dual certified in psychology and computer science and taught for a year and a half. Uh, got pregnant with our daughter, and uh, who's 21 now. And uh, at that point, I realized I wasn't going to be able to make enough money because, as you all know, I'm sure, uh, teachers don't make a lot of money. Um, so I left there, and I went and, and made IT a career because I already knew quite a bit about computers at that point. I'd, I'd been a hobbyist, pretty hardcore, and and worked in a computer store selling them for about seven years. So uh, I did that. I had to leave because of the pregnancy, and uh, the IT career just took off from there. That was in uh, 1995, and uh, I've been doing it for 22 years now. And I'm I'm at the top of I'm at the top of the individual contributor uh, ladder in terms of the pay scale. Uh, but it's taken me you know a while to get there, and so I've 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 worked hard to get my wage up. 
but at the same time, I haven't increased my standard of living that much. So, you know, I, I, I'm obviously living much better than I was then, uh, but I haven't increased my standard of living every time my wages went up. And so, as a result, I had options. Uh, you know, I could put more into the 401k, more into the IRA, uh, and then also get into real estate. So, a friend of mine who I actually sold computers with back when I was in late college turned me on to a book, uh, the, the Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I'm sure that one comes up in your podcast a lot. It's not written at a very high level. Uh, it's probably a sixth grade reading level, uh, the writing, but the message is, is sound, I think. And it's something that seems obvious to people that are investors, but it's really not to most people. And that is, is that you've got to invest in things that can generate passive cash flow. Uh, you don't want to buy yourself another job. Uh, and for me, stocks have proven to be uh, more volatile than I'm willing to put up with. So that's what got me in, interested in real estate 20 years ago, and it went from there. Good stuff. So, Paul, what is your net worth today? At $1.1 million without taking into account the equity of my primary residence. Okay. That's equity in real estate and rental properties, uh, 401k and IRA and cash. And what's the, the percentage breakdown of those three? Uh, about 624k in equity on rental homes, uh, 460k in 401k and IRA combined, and about 40k in cash. I keep a cash buffer for you know when you have six homes. I've got my house and five additional homes, so I have to have enough you know buffer to take care of maintenance issues. And why why do you decide not to include the equity in your own home as part of your uh, net worth? Well, that's kind of back to the rich dad, poor dad thing again, right? Um, one of the lessons in the book is that the house you live in is is not an asset. It costs you money every month. I mean, there's pro- even if you own your own home, you still are paying property taxes and insurance and maintenance, uh, plus your utility bills and all the other things that go along with the house. So to me, you know, I don't want to consider the equity in the house. That's just a bonus if and when I uh, liquidate the house and move somewhere else like Mexico or Costa Rica, which is is on my radar, uh, places like that. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. I've always kind of, you know, thought it was interesting that, you know, we, we, some people count the equity in their home as, as part of their net worth. And I'm not saying that's wrong or right, but it is, it is one of those things where you really don't ever see that money until you actually sell it. And a lot of people don't actually sell their homes or they roll the money or the equity into a new home. I want to I want to back up just real quick. When you mentioned that your parents went through a bankruptcy, did you know at that time as a teenager kind of what that meant and what the effects were, or did you kind of learn that a little bit later in life? Well, uh, actually, I kind of I, I kind of picked up on it right about that time. I think I was probably fourteen at the time, or maybe fifteen. And the reason, part of the reason it, it struck me, and I learned more about it, is because my dad's name is the same as mine, and I'm just junior. And so what happened was the credit reporting agencies reported the bankruptcy both on his credit and mine. Oh, wow. So I was trying to get a credit card later on when I was in my late teens, and I had a bankruptcy on there. And I was like, uh, I had to contact the credit reporting agency and say, well, um, I'm 17 or 18 years old. I've never had a credit card, so you obviously have me mistaken with my father. So uh, that kind of was a lesson that stayed with me. Gotcha. because of that. Wow. So talk about what, what's been your, let me ask you this, what's been your range of income since you've been working? You said you kind of started at the bottom and now you're at the top. What, what's that range been? Yeah. So uh, when I got my teacher certification and taught my first year, it was 1994 school year. And I think I, I made $19,000. Uh, 
uh, teaching in the Cedar Hill School District, which is uh, in the outskirts of the Dallas area. It's a small rural area. So that was very bad. And then I got a raise when I went to Dallas uh, the next year, DISD, which is where I was teaching when I left. When we got pregnant, I jumped from 19000 to 26000 And then I went in for uh, the IT positions, and I got an interview uh, at a, uh, well, I shouldn't say it's an oil and gas company that's no longer there, but it's in the Plano area. I went in for an interview for them for desktop support, uh, and uh, I blew away all the other candidates that they'd interviewed because, I, like I say, I already had almost a decade of experience. And so I actually called up the, the contract agency that was going to you know, pay me and beat them up for a couple extra dollars a month, or sorry, dollars an hour. And so, uh, so that ended up being a starting pay of about 36000 so that got me about a $10,000 raise. And then I was a contractor there for three months and managed to get both the, um, the contracting agency, which was Digital Equipment Corp., and, and the host company. Uh, DEC was there doing desktop support under contract, so I was technically a contractor to them. Uh, but the host company uh, liked me enough that they competed for, the, for hiring me. And so I got to take my pick between the two of them. So I stayed with the host company because I figured if DEC lost the contract, I'd be moving anyway, and I wanted to find you know, a house to live in and be somewhere in the area. And so it turned out to be a good, good decision. Um, when I got hired on there, I jumped to probably about 43000 a year. Uh, so it was about another $7,000 raise. And then uh, basically I just uh, continually uh, showed value and, and demonstrated that I was a valuable uh, member of the IT department and, and continually raised my pay since then. Um, I did leave temporarily when that oil company got bought out. Um, they got bought out and closed that facility because that was a research campus for the oil and gas company that I was at, and they gave people options to either go to Tulsa, Oklahoma, or Houston, and I didn't want to go to either one of those, so I moved on and went to uh, another company uh, associated with Bell Labs, and I worked there for a couple of years, and uh, I made a, a pay jump from there as well. So I guess I should say that my final pay after five years at the oil and gas company, which was right around 2000, late 1999, early 2000, was 63000 and when I left to go to the other company associated with Bell Labs, I was a Unix administrator at that time, Solaris and AIX, and uh, when I jumped to the other company, I got uh, a nice raise there. I went to 85000 um, worked there for about two, two and a half years, and they had a series of layoffs, and I got hit, and uh, coincidentally, the day that they announced the layoffs for the group of six people uh, that our team consisted of, it was my birthday. <laughs> so the guy who went in before me said, well, go easy on the next guy. And they were like, why? And he said, because it's his birthday. So it turned out that they asked me and one other person to stay on for a few months because we knew the most about the, uh, the product that we had built. And so I stayed on until the end of December, but my birthday's in October. So that was a nice birthday present. And then, uh, so that was 85000 And then I had about nine to 12 months uh, off of work as I looked for a job. I ended up uh, oddly enough, uh, I went back to the same campus that I had worked at before. This is what is really strange. The, com the campus that I worked at from 95 to 2000 had been purchased by another company uh, who was an IT outsourcer. And they were using the campus that the oil and gas company had built in the 1970s, and they were now doing IT outsourcing out of there using the, um, the six-story building as a data center. Because uh, the Atlanta... Uh, the oil and gas company, I almost said the name, the oil and gas company had uh, overbuilt everything in the campus. So the entire six stories of that building were uh, raised flooring, is what it's called in, in the uh, parlance of data centers. And that just means that all of the floors can be lifted up with either suction tiles or with 
you know, the claws that grab the carpet and lift the tiles up. So you can run cabling and things and, and cooling underneath the uh, floor. And so they had bought that. So I came back and actually ended up being hired by that company. And uh, I had a career with them. Uh, and then we got bought by another company, another uh, large computer equipment company that you would know the name of if I told you. Uh, pretty much everybody has one on their desktop. Uh, worked for them for five years after we got acquired, so still on the same campus. And then we just got acquired again by another IT outsourcer, a global one, because the uh, the, the, the larger uh, computer manufacturer uh, spun us off to help finance a purchase of an extremely large uh, company, uh, the largest tech acquisition in history, in fact. Um, so I'm still with them. So now I've been with uh, three different companies in the same campus now for uh, going on 22 years. Wow. And, gotcha. Uh, yeah. So when I left, uh, I should say that when I left the, uh, the, the company associated with Bell Labs at the 85000 pay, when I jumped back over to the other company, uh, I'd had nine months of no, of no work history at that point. And I was going into a different uh, area of IT that I was not as experienced at, but I, kn I knew tons of it, but I didn't have a lot of job history, so my pay actually dropped about twenty-five dollars to $30,000 when I first did that move. And so I, after dropping from eighty-five down to fifty-eight, then I worked it all the way back up to where I am today, which is $143K uh, base. But I've only been at that rate for about the last two years, three years. And prior to that, it was at 113 ish and for about two years or a year and a half, and then prior to that, it was below 100. So it's pretty wow. fair to say that you've done this pretty much with a sub-six-figure salary, correct? Yes, I would say so. Mm -hmm. That's Almost pretty. all of it was that way. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. Congrats to you. Thank you. And, yeah. and, and happy birthday if it's October, huh? <laughs> so let me just yeah. kind of go let me just kind of go through this here so you started mid-20s these are kind of your milestones i've got correct me if i'm wrong mid-20s to 43k to 63 to 85 to 113 and then 140 yep and so right. it, and now you you're worth over a million dollars, 1.1, more if you count the equity in your home, you know, and, and you haven't, you haven't made above 150,000. So how, how have you done it? Well, it's, uh, it was slow going at first because after I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and convinced myself that that was going to be part of my retirement plan was rental properties. I was I was the sole breadwinner in the house, so we had our daughter, and my wife was staying home with her. So it was kind of a double whammy to have moved out of our apartment and into our, our first house in uh, 1996. We moved into the Frisco, Texas area back when it was nothing, uh, and we got into that house. And so we increased our expenses at the exact same time that we decreased our income. I was making more because I was in IT, but my wife stopped working. So the net effect was that we lost a little income. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, we just didn't increase our standard of living every time we had an opportunity. And uh, as I say, I continually beat up my employers uh, to make sure that I was making as much as I could and uh, showing value where I could. So the first house took us a while to acquire. So I think that's really the hardest one is going from one house to two um, because you, we spent probably, let's see, 96 is when we moved in. And I'd say it was 12 years ago or 11 years ago that we left that house and moved to the second home. And so 
to keep that house when you've got almost 10 years of equity in it. Most people can't do that or won't do that. That's the hardest one because you've been paying into this house for now eight or 10 years. You've got significant equity in it. And you can't, as you mentioned, you can't unlock that equity to make it the down payment for the next house. So you've got to go and qualify for a second mortgage and be prepared to pay two mortgages at the same time if necessary if you can't keep the house rented, you know, your old house. And so really I guess what I was doing is I was doing what the people call house hacking now, which is, you know, you do it when you're younger and typically you do it with something like a duplex. You'd buy a duplex as a, um, a primary, you know, as a, as a homestead purchase, right? And since it's going to be owner-occupied, you'll get the lowest interest rates and you'll get the smallest down payments. Uh, and so what you do is in house hacking is you would buy that property and live in it for a year or two, uh, renting out the other side potentially, or even if it's a single-family home like mine, uh, the single-family homes are what I rent, three twos typically, three-bedroom, two-bathroom. Um, but the, the idea is the same. You would stay in it for a year or two, and then you would go and do the same thing. You would buy another property, get owner-occupied financing, uh, best interest rates, lowest down payments, and then you would, you know, that's how you build a, a portfolio with house hacking. So I was kind of doing that same thing without knowing that there was a term for it. So I kept my house until I was comfortable enough that we could jump to the next house, which was one that we wanted to live in ourselves. And our original first house was small enough. It's a 1,300 square foot, three bedroom, two bathroom in Frisco, and it makes an ideal rental. I really like the three twos because they're just enough of a step above apartment living uh, that people will desire them, right? Because to get a 1,300-square-foot apartment is difficult and more expensive even. So you gain, you know, two-car garage, you gain a backyard, you gain privacy, you can make some noise, and you're not going to disturb your neighbors like you would in an apartment. You don't get nickel and dime for things like parking spaces or, you know, gym membership or any of that stuff. So took, I guess then that was probably eight to ten years to get to the first one. Uh, and then once we moved into our house, I saved again, you know, didn't increase the standard of living, and then I was at that point, I was into purchasing properties as an investor, not as owner-occupied. So, of course, the, the rules change at that point. Fannie Freddie guidelines, you have to put down 20%, and you, your interest rate's typically a percent higher than for owner-occupied financing. And so the next purchase happened, I want to say, six years ago, uh, around the same time that we jumped into the house that we're living in now. Uh, Oh, it wouldn't even have been that long ago. I guess that would only have been four years ago. Yeah. So that was when we bought our next property. Right after I, we moved into this house, uh, we, we liquidated our second house and sold it uh, so we'd have the down payment money. And then at the same time, I, I had to do some juggling of finances, and I don't remember all the details actually, but I did a, a, a loan against my 401K to myself for, I think, uh, the max amount, which was 50000 and I used that money to, to juggle things, and I paid the loan back immediately as soon as we liquidated our house. So the loan was out probably a total of six weeks. Um, but we immediately got into this house, and then I was looking for an investment property uh, with, the, with the extra capital I had. And so I bought an investment property in McKinney over near the uh, Highway 75 for people that are familiar with the area. And uh, that's a 3-2 as well, a little bit smaller, 1,100 square foot. And then two more properties followed pretty quickly. After that, within three years, I had that house paid off. Um, I, I sent them a large check at the end uh, just about a year ago and paid that one off, a uh, $63,000 check um, from saved up capital. And then I found a house over in Providence Village through a realtor friend of mine and purchased that one. That was a, a three-bedroom, two-bathroom, 1,350, 1,400-square-footer. And uh, come to find out that the lady who was living in that house 
had 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 the guy living next door mowing her yard for her and taking care of it. Well, it's a pretty good trip out to this Providence Village area from where I live. It's about 20 minutes, 25 minutes each way. So I I went and met the guy and asked him if he'd take care of the yard for me until I got a renter in there. And he, he said, yeah, he would. And there's an HOA in that area, so I have to be careful, you know, make sure the yard's kept up. Otherwise, uh, the HOA will come after me. So he was taking care of the yard, and about a week and a half, two weeks after I asked him, he texted me because we'd exchanged cell phone numbers and uh, said, hey, you're an investor. Um, we're thinking of moving. Would you be interested in buying our house? And I was like, well, I don't know. Tell me about it. So the house next door was uh, his house, and it's a three-bedroom, two-and-a-half bath, uh, two-story, about 400 square feet bigger than the other one, about 1750, I guess, maybe three, 400 square feet bigger. And so we worked out a deal uh, where I ended up purchasing the house from him for quite a bit below uh, the appraised value. So I paid him 156,000 for it, and then there were some maintenance issues from the inspection, so I got him to knock it down about 2,000 or 2250. Yeah, 2250. So I think I got that house for 153,750. Uh, no realtor fees. And uh, at closing, whenever they appraised the house, the bank sent out their appraiser uh, to, uh, you know, check the value of the house. It appraised between 170 and 173. So right there, I'd already captured 18 to 20 thousand of equity just on the purchase by keeping realtors out of the deal and by doing it myself. Um, gotcha. So, so let me let me let me stop you for a second, just and go through here for our listeners. So you have about 625k across five rental homes. Is that that's correct? Yes, that's right. One's fully paid off. The other four have more. There's there's mortgages on the others. Okay, and they're and they're all worth about the same amount, uh, roughly. No, the uh, the values on the houses are one of them, one of them in the one in Frisco that was our original house is worth about two hundred and eleven thousand right now. Uh, the one that we purchased that I said was in McKinney that's over there up by Virginia in seventy five is one hundred eighty three thousand. Uh, the one, the two in Providence next door to each other, uh, the smaller one is worth 173-ish, and the bigger one is worth 197. And then uh, I have another rental in Dallas that I didn't mention. This one was a full rehab, so if we want to get into that, I can talk about that one as well. Uh, that one's worth 272. Gotcha. Uh, the amount of equity in each of them it ranges from 78,000 to 183,000, depending on the property. The 183,000 is the McKinney one that's fully owned. And and are they all? Let's say for the last couple of years, have they been occupied the whole time? Yeah. yeah. So kind of the way I do when I buy rental properties is is I've heard you know some of your other podcasts, and I've heard some of the people that are you know working towards the the lower end properties because of things like you know Section Eight and things, and that's great. But for me, I've always felt like you know I'm providing a service to people or a product, and when I'm looking at rental properties, I only ever look at ones or seriously look at buying ones that I would want to live in. And so if they don't meet a decent level of quality, I don't buy them. So it costs me more, and maybe I'd, I'd have a better net worth at this point if I'd done that, but it creates less headaches. I can get a higher quality of a renter, um, and I can command you know a premium price for, for the properties. So there's some benefits that go with doing it that way. I've, I have had Section 8 renters in the past. And there are some advantages. Uh, obviously, one is that the, the state, you know, helps pay part of the rent. So in some cases, all of it, but not usually. Um, but what I found, actually, that I didn't even know about until after I had a Section 8 renter, who was somebody that I was looking to rent to and then just sprung the fact that she was the Section 8 person at the end because she was actually on the waiting list. And so she wasn't Section 8 at the time that she uh, inquired on the property, but by the time we got around to doing the contract, she was. But one of the nice things about a Section 8 
is that because those people have to wait in a waiting list uh, and they have to dot all the I's and cross all the T's to stay on a Section 8 voucher, that gives you leverage over them. So if they'll behave better than some other renters who, who only have a security deposit at risk. If you, as a landlord, contact the Section 8 people and tell them about misbehavior or property damage, they'll pull their voucher and they won't be eligible to use it anywhere else. Whereas if you don't do that, they can take the voucher with them and go to another landlord and get the same benefit they were getting with you. So it does, in a way, it's almost better than normal renters. Fair enough, fair enough. So what are you cash flowing a month from these rentals? About 2700 after pity, after all the principal interest taxes and insurance is paid, right at 2768 So that gives you about another, what, 32 grand, something like that a year? Yeah, about 33000 if something doesn't come up. That's speaking pretty darn good. That, yeah, speaking of things that have come up, I've got another story about that too if we have time. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, one of my properties, our original Frisco house, I had a renter in there. In fact, this was the lady who was the Section 8 who sprung that on me. It turned out that she had a friend uh, who had been bringing her children over to that house in the morning every day, Monday through Friday, so that they could attend schools in the Frisco School District, even though she was living with her parents in Carrollton. Uh, so when it came time for the, the lady who was Section 8 to move out, the other lady wanted to move in. Well, I did my normal screening on her using TransUnion, which I use, which pulls back, you know, credit, criminal, and, and uh, eviction history. And she was not she was not a winner on that score, so I was not going to rent to her. But, you know, once I found out her situation with the kids and she begged and pleaded and said she'd give a double deposit, against my better judgment, I let her talk me into it. So she ended up staying in the house for about a year and a half, but that wasn't the interesting part. What was interesting is that she did, uh, her and her ex-husband, who was not on the lease but ended up living there some of the time anyway, uh, basically made a mess of the property. And uh, they were late on rent a lot of times. I had to chase her down uh, quite a bit to get rent out of her, um, charging them late fees and stuff to try to get it. I eventually took them to uh, the uh, JP court and, and won an eviction against them. And they begged and pleaded, and they caught up on the rent, and they you know, said that they were going to you know, do better and I finally got fed up. I, I let them stay at that point uh, only because we had discovered how much damage they had done to the property. It looked like they had had UFC tryouts or something. There was holes in the sheetrock, like <laughs> holes. Uh, doors were broken, uh, you know, bashed. Uh, there was five five cabinet doors were missing in the kitchen, just missing. I mean, the, the doors and the hinges were gone, not like they'd been unscrewed, not like they'd been jerked off. I don't even know what happened there. Uh, the pantry door in the kitchen was missing, gone. The hinges were gone. The door was off. So it just the place was a mess, and uh, so I was like, well, you know, I can I can kick her out now, but I'm gonna have to do a rehab, right? If I, otherwise I can just let her stay in here, I'll raise the rent on her, and make her stay, and she can just live in her own mess for a while. So I was letting her do that, and that was the current status quo for a while, uh, still being late every once in a while on rent, me having to chase her down. But what really was came to a head was November last year. Uh, my wife gets a call at work because we still knew some of the neighbors that lived around there because that was our original house in 96. So she gets a call and says uh, that one of the neighbors has called her and told her that the, the SWAT team is outside the house. Jeez. Um, and they street blocked off. And I'm like, what? So I call the Frisco Police Department to ask them, you know, to tell them I'm the landlord, I've got a key, you don't have to break the door in. It was too late, they'd already broken the door and They'd been outside for 45 minutes blocking the street it was the Frisco SWAT team and the ATF, and they were looking for her ex-husband. 
So that was a big nightmare. So then I had to fix the door, of course, in the front door, and I kicked <laughs> her out. 30 days later, she was gone. And I was like, it's, you know, it was one thing to give me a hard time, but when you start terrorizing our ex-neighbors, you know, that's, that's going to be a problem because we, there's an elderly couple that lived next door, and they actually left the house because they were afraid there was going to be gunplay. I mean, there's, you know, there's a SWAT team and ATF guys out there. Wow. It's a small-time, you know, police thing. So uh, I got rid of her, and then I had to do the rehab on the property, and that was, and I also had to go to the D.C. branch of the ATF to get compensated for the front door, and there's no guarantee that was going to happen. But, uh, you know, I submitted the forms, and it, they paid. They paid it. Like, you know, he's not on the lease. You weren't looking for me, and it's my property, and, you know. So they, they ended up paying for that. But the net for the rehab on the property, which it's now better than it ever was, it's better than it was when it was new, but I probably put 24000 I didn't keep exact... Uh, tally of it, but it was roughly about twenty-four thousand in, in rehab. So, you know, I'm making thirty-three thousand a year. But if I have to do things like that, yeah, you know, set you back. Quick. So actually, the lesson of that is, don't rent to people when they don't pass your screen, even if they try to talk you into it. Just stick. You got to pick your criteria and stick to them. You know, six hundred and fifty credit score, no eviction history, no criminal background. There's just there's too many renters out there for you to, to make concessions and end up in a situation like that. I mean, the house was going to need rehab eventually anyway because it was 20 years old, 22 years old, but it didn't need that much. Right, right. Fair enough. So let me ask you about your uh, – let's kind of change gears a little bit from the real estate and, and go into your 401K. So you have about 460K roughly in your in your 401K. And just kind of looking at that breakout, it looks like the two biggest pieces are about 130 in an international index fund, and 130 in a you know regular just equity index fund. How come those have been your biggest drivers? You also have a couple bond indexes or small cap indexes of roughly 60k a piece. How have you decided what to invest in there in your 401k? Well, I, I kind of alluded to this when we were emailing about because I'm not really a, um, a stock person. Both the uh, the 401k and the IRA are are actively managed, so I didn't pick those investments. Those are just the what the Fidelity you know financial engines people chose, and then uh, the Edward Jones account is managed by an investor person I met about a year ago. Do you still contribute to your 401k? Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've, pretty much maxing it out each year gotcha so what what are some of the mistakes that you've made along the way i mean it's you've got a 20 plus year history of investing what are some of the mistakes well uh the one thing i just mentioned uh, i just gave the story about was you know make sure if you're going to be a landlord that you screen people because it'll make your life easier and you'll have so much less wear and tear on your property that it, it easily pays for itself in fact i don't even pay for the screenings i make the the prospective renters pay so it doesn't cost me anything to screen them. Um, I lost a lot of money on an individual stock at one point about 11 years ago. I made a ton of money on it on paper because the stock went from, I bought it initially at $13 and something a share. Uh, I, I backed up the truck and loaded up on it at 20 Then I sat on it for about 18 months and watched it triple in value. It went from 20 to a little over 60 and then it went right back down the toilet, and I had such an emotional investment in this thing succeeding because it was a tech stock that I know, you know, I know technology very well, and so I can see when something's going to be successful. And so I rode the thing all the way back down from the, the low 60s all the way back down into the 20s, and that was just like a nightmare. 
And then it ran back up again. It went back up into the 50s. Uh, and then I came home from a colonoscopy one day, and it had dropped all the way back down into the 20s, and I'm still doped up from my procedure. And I decided, hey, you know, maybe I can jump out of this at 27 or 25 and, you know, get back in if it drops another couple of bucks. Well, no, it didn't. The very next day, uh, some information leaked out, and it was not in the news, and the stock jumped up like 15 to 20 points this next day, of course, the day right after I sold it. Hmm. So I sat on this stuff for 18 months, watched myself lose a quarter million dollars of value increase, uh, and, and it jumped out of it at the exact wrong time and ended up basically below where I had started at. Uh, so that's when I decided it's better off if I just put money into things and don't try to actively trade because I'm really good at picking stocks, but I stink at, at, at executing trades on the, in the correct time and keeping emotion out of it. Um, that same stock today is over 130. Wow. So the 115,000 I put into it initially would be worth about 700,000 now. Wow. So does your company provide a manager for your 401k or is that something that you've chosen yourself? It's an option with the 401k program that the company provides. You can just put it in there and manage it yourself or you can you can pay them a few points or whatever it is that they charge for that. I don't even know what their fees are. For me, you know, for me the 401k and the IRA are really about just socking money away in a tax advantaged account uh, to lower my tax burden now and then, you know, have money later, you know, to pull out in smaller increments so I get in a lower tax bracket when I'm in retirement. Um, so I don't think I'm going to be a very good person to talk to about planning in, turn, in, in that regard. For me, it's always been about just shove as much as I can in there and not even look at it. Uh, the real estate is really the thing that is my, um, that's my cherry on top, I think. Gotcha. So you've, you've built this net worth. You've got yourself in a bunch of rentals. You've got this 401k going. Seems like you're doing super well in your career. Where do you go from here? Well, uh, Mexico or Costa Rica. <laughs> what I'm considering doing, and I'm sure you guys have heard of this, is I'm considering uh, making my house into an executive rental uh, a couple of months out of the year, like in the really hot season here in Texas, maybe July, August, and then maybe in the really cold months. Uh, I don't know if I can arrange or twist the arms of people at work to say, hey, just let me keep working while I'm down in Mexico for two months. Uh, or four months total of the year because uh, I work remote as it is. I work from home, so I don't know why they would care where I am. In fact, I could probably go down there and they probably wouldn't even realize it. Uh, <laughs> so, so what I'm thinking is is I could turn this house into an executive rental, which would be to pull all the personal belongings out but leave all the furniture and you know TVs and things behind. And uh, I have a theater room in this house, which is actually was in the original floor plan is a, is a fifth bedroom, but we had it built as a theater, and so there is no window or closet in there. So I'm thinking I can just put all of our personal belongings in there, lock that door up with a really good lock, and then rent the house as executive rental for probably an additional cash flow of about 1000 to 1500 a month over what the, the pity is on this house, because we bought this house about four years ago. Um, and if we do that, then that means if I could keep it rented for those times that we're gone, I could be renting down in Mexico or Costa Rica for half that or less, and uh, I'd still be cash flowing. In fact, I'd increase my cash flow for the month that we were gone and get to hang out in another place. So if I quit my job, I can do that anytime I want. I could do it full-time if I wanted to. The question is, how do you how do you keep a house that's executive rental occupied? It's not like a traditional lease, you know, one- to two-year lease. Somebody might need only three months or six months 
if they're having a house built or something and they need to move to the area and, and work. Like uh, we had a large relocation of Toyota and I think Liberty Mutual moved here. So uh, they, they bring employees that maybe their houses are getting constructed and there's a backlog of construction so it could take them six to nine months to get it built. Gotcha. Do you have a target net worth or a target uh, number of rentals you want or or uh, target number of pa- amount of passive income you're, you're shooting for? Well, I'm sure you guys have seen the website FireCalc. Uh, I, I subscribe to, the, to that tool a bit because I really like the idea that it will run scenarios for every, every actual market condition mm-hmm. uh, in, in inflation-adjusted dollars for your nest egg, for how much you're going to withdraw, and for how many years. And I also like the fact that it, it operates under super pessimistic assumptions, which one of which is it doesn't include Social Security. Uh, it doesn't. It assumes you never work again, and it assumes you never put another dollar into your savings. So if you can survive, you know, 95 plus percent of scenarios that have ever existed for a 30-year period, let's say, in the market, with that tool, it seems pretty clear that you're probably in good shape. So I like that tool, and I think that. I think the magic number is probably around a million to 1.1, so I think I'm kind of there, but it would be, I feel like I'd have more options maybe if I already had my property paid for. Uh, I could liquidate my house, and as I say, I don't count my my home's equity in that 1.1 million, so in theory, I could do that now. It's just, uh, I think I'm in that one more year syndrome. You hear about people that are trying to get to early retirement. (laughs) You know, you're at the top of your career. You're making the most money you've ever made. Uh, you know your company's better to you than when you were younger, right? They don't—they're not so monopolizing of your time. So it feels crazy to be considering it sometimes. But I do want to stop. Um, I just gotcha. I haven't gotten, I'm ready to pull the trigger quite yet. Let me ask you this: uh, one more question here. So you have about half of your net worth, or more than half of your net worth, in these five rentals. Do you ever think about moving to multifamily? You know, I have. I've, I've looked at it a bit. I have a book on it. Multifamily, multifamily Millions, I think it's called. Uh, and I only got a couple chapters into it, and I kind of, my eyes blazed over it. I, I wasn't into it. I think <laughs> I'm just a single family guy, because the same thing that I was talking about earlier, where having a higher quality of a home uh, attracts people who are trying to move out of apartments and up into something better. Right, and maybe they're going to be potential homeowners themselves soon. Uh, that kind of renter, I, I resonate with that person more than I resonate with the people who tend to rent apartments and things. Uh, they're more transient. Uh, they're lower income. Uh, it's crowded. You get situations where you know uh, somebody gets a roach infestation because someone next door lives like a slob, and the bugs move around, you know, to other people's apartments. So there's there's things about it I like. Obviously, the scale is good, but in a way, I feel like it'd be more work to, to manage it. I know I'd probably end up hiring, you know, a management company. But again, I also don't know that much about the contract situations and the financing. The way it goes seems different. Like a lot of them seem like they'll give you a five-year loan and then you got to refinance it five years or something. And it just it's it's different. And so I'm I'm comfortable with the single family. I understand it and I've I've been successful with it. So I'm pretty much just sticking with that at this point. Well, yeah. I mean, you've obviously done well at it. So Paul. I mean, thanks again for coming on the show. You got a net worth of over a million dollars. You started making, you know, 27K. You're, you're at about 140, but just for the last couple of years, you know, you've shown that that you can do it slow and steady. That's been, that's, you know, is that fair to say that's what you've done? Yeah, 
Yeah, I would say that's exactly what I've done. Um, I've, I've got a lot of liberal attitudes uh, in, when it comes to politics and things, but when it comes to money, I'm very conservative about things like this. So any last advice, any last advice to, to our listeners or, you know, maybe early 30s starting off or, you know, even your age or beyond? Any last advice to anybody? Yeah, I would say sock as much as you can into your tax-advantaged accounts and uh, live beneath your means because as you, uh, as you free up cash because you're not spending all of it every month, you'll find yourself with opportunities and options that you wouldn't otherwise have if you didn't have a bank of cash uh, coming in. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much again for being on the show. Over a million dollar net worth, you've done a phenomenal job. So we definitely appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks Paul. for sharing. Okay. Nice talking with you. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.